Hi, folks, and welcome to another Saturday morning semiflange. I'm Matt. Come. <laughs> Have you ever wanted to? Uh, somebody uh, knocks on your door, and you just want to say, "Come." Like, um, how authoritative and amazing is that? Nah, I thought for a minute you were gonna say, "Con," but that's the wrong captain. <laughs> so, so anyway, yes, come, wrong, wrong come. captain. Yes, just that's one of my favorite parts of the next generation is how Patrick Stewart answers the door. Um, come. And it's terrific. So, part two. I should have had some Earl Grey, but go ahead. Oh, I don't have any Earl Grey we right now. You don't have any Earl Grey. I should have had some Earl oh. Grey for us. But anyway, so part two of <laughs> Patrick Stewart. We can just Stewart's, pretend like we're sipping on some Earl Grey. I, I want to pretend it. So part two of Patrick Stewart's biography. We want to go into this because there's some good parts I want to talk about. Yes, his, his memoir. Uh, memoir, so yes. to speak, yeah. So... Yes, last week you so rudely cut me off in the middle I of did, my did, of did, my so topic, but that's quite all right so because good. you know we get to we get to expound a little bit more on one of our mm-hmm. favorite characters and people. And there's good stuff yet to come. You said good stuff yet to come. Yes, absolutely. I, I I'm not going to be rambling on. I hope uh, no it's been about great nothing. So far. Okay, good. So I talked a lot about his youth, his theater upbringing, and uh, childhood, and how he got to TNG, and. Uh, uh, it's great because a third of the book probably is the the part that we know, and two thirds is the part that we don't know. And I think for me personally, as an actor and as someone who's interested in that kind of thing, mm-hmm. and if anybody has any interest in the theater, like the first two thirds of the book, I was both shocked and so pleasantly surprised at how much of it was not about Star Trek. And how much of the book that, was not at all about X-Men or anything else. And that's good, yeah. in a way, because you get to know more than what he is or who he is. Precisely. And, and at, but at the same time, it may have disappointed some fans, because I'll be honest, when I read Warwick Davis's uh, autobiography, he spoke a lot about Leprechaun, because that's what he's known Leprechaun? About. Leprechaun. Interesting. But he skimmed over the Ewok movies. <gasps> which I guess they were just... But no one really knows. But that Star Wars... He talked about a lot about Return of the Jedi... Said I made two TV movies too that were fun, and then I was like, "Whoa, whoa, that's so it!" So really, just skipped over them. I said, "Well, I want to hear about the TV movies." Interesting, but you know, it, it's kind of weird because some things he just didn't think were as important to me. But and, and, but know, that is interesting that he he showed you there was more to him. It's than true. Just what you and know. And I wonder him with for. Warwick Davis, like how much of that is is your editor cutting you that out? How much of it is they think they need to sell books? Possibly, possibly. But his editor should have said, "Hey, you don't sound humble at all." And he uh. <laughs> he's very proud of himself. Cool. So uh, anyway, I mean though. that's great. Uh, I, I never, you never get that vibe, that kind of vibe from this. At least I didn't. Like there, in there, the moments that he does brag. He like sets you up. He's like, "Listen, I'm gonna brag for just a second, but because let me tell you how cool this moment was." You know, he sets it up appropriately when he does brag, so that you kind of feel like, "Okay, that's actually I'm really a, cool." I'm a brag. Yeah, I'm totally yeah. on board with you bragging about that. Like, yeah. that was good. Dude. I'm not saying you can't brag what you do. No, 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 no. no. Yeah. I, but that's that's the joy of it is that he is very humble, and you know, he grew up in that all very, and that's a joke that he talks about with, uh, 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 I think Frakes or Michael Dorn says that to him all the time ever since they just started oh, really? doing star trek he says okay but you do your poor man mentality or your poor mentality or something because patrick stewart never does he, he does he folds his own laundry every week he, oh, wow. he never like, he's a multimillionaire. yeah dude doesn't have to 
fold his own laundry. But he does. But it's a ritual he's had since he did rep theater, I guess, when he so was he 20. continues it. So even to this day, like on Saturday mornings or Sunday morning, whatever day he says, he folds his laundry and sits and he thinks. And it's his thinking time that he uses and just wow. processes through yeah. things. No, I get that. And, I get that. And that they made fun of him on TNG because he would go home and fold his laundry. And, and they're like, what? You don't... You know you have the money to do that, right? You, you can send out for somebody. You can send that out. I think it was Jonathan Frakes that was like ripping him for it. Still does to this day, like anytime they go to a convention. So, But his poor man mentality, his poor mentality doesn't let him get egotistical and brag. He's had a very successful, uh, wonderful, blessed life. But you never feel like this is just some rich old dude bragging about what he's accomplished. Because it's all coming from a place of humility and you know... And by the time you get to TNG, you understand the crap that he's gone through and, and what he did to get there and the work that he put in to be able to even have the chance to do TNG and to be in movies and things like that. And it's speaking of being in movies and getting your start kind of thing, uh, he was in Dune, right? So Dune was 1976, 75? Yeah, so, somewhere in the mid to late 70s. Um, it was 1980. Is it the 80s? Know. I mean, eight, eight, 80, if it You're was. Probably I'll, right. I'll look it up. It's I'll early. look it up. Thank you. So, to, to get his start in Dune, I forget who the director of Dune was. Uh, look that up, too. 84. Wow. Oh, really? It seems wow. old. 84. That. Who directed, who directed uh, Dune? That was, uh, oh, shoot, Finch. David Finch. David Finch. So, David Finch comes to England and sees, I think, uh, not King Lear, but... Uh, not Macbeth, but some King Richard III, one of those you know kingly characters in Shakespeare. Uh, there's plenty of them. And uh, Patrick Stewart was this you know really gaunt. He'd lost a lot of weight. He had a long wig on because he lost his hair when he was like 25, maybe. And so he was completely bald from his early 20s on. And but the thing is, is that actually probably in his teens because that was how that was a part of his shtick. How he would get parts. Because he would walk into his audition with a with a toupee on or a wig on, and he had a special audition toupee that he would go to all of his auditions with, and then he would, you know, do his lines and da da da. And he said, "And so here I am, I'm a professional working actor." And then he would rip off his toupee and say, "And I'm a character actor, and you can put any wig on me you want." And so you're getting two actors for the price of one. That's good. And he had this whole little like sales pitch that he would do for himself. And then any producer worth their salt trying to pinch pennies anywhere they could, they were like, two actors for the price of one, sold. Done. And that's how he yeah. got a lot of his parts. That's good. That's smart. And honestly, even for like his big roles, he was he went off to some big role and he just had no time to prep for it or something like that. And he had to get his wife to like send him his toupee so that he could go in and do his his shtick so that he could do his two two actors for the price of one thing. So someone like mailed it to him. <laughs> So that he could be ready for the audition. So, anyway, did you find a thing about? Yeah. Dune? So I found it. It. You, this is where you got the. It. It. They signed the rights in 1971 with the intention to do it. <gasps> That's right. But they never. It never they got never made because the done. the film producer who bought it died two years later, hmm. and then plans just kept jumping. The rights kept flip flopping everywhere in the 70s, right, and right. they finally got something down in the early 80s, 81, to start. Shooting on actually filming 84, which was a bomb, yeah, it bombed in oh, theaters. Total bomb, yeah, 
And uh, but yeah, but you're you're it went through. It was supposed to be in the seventies, but the producer, film producer, died two years after uh, okay. signing the rights. Okay. Well, that makes sense. Yeah. So that's the, where you're the director was in the Royal Shakespeare Company and was looking for a different actor who was like the lead of this play that they were in. not Patrick Stewart. He wasn't there yet. He was just in the show or one of the kings or something like that. That wasn't a huge or uh, the main role. I don't think. And and then he just saw Patrick Stewart walk by, or he saw the king walk by. And he's like, wow. And he's told his production assistant, like, hey, go find out who that actor was because he looked great. You know, we might want to put him in Dune because he had already, they were going to film it. They weren't filming yet. But he's like, man, go, go find out who he was and make a note because we might need to use him for the movie. And he, uh, sure enough, another actor that they had dropped out or got sick or something like that. And, they, and then the director was like, who are we going to get for this? Because we got to film like next week. And then he turns to his PA like, oh. Who was that actor that we walked that walked past us in the Royal Shakespeare Company when we were there? And she looks at uh, Patrick Stewart. Say, okay, get Patrick Stewart. Call him and wow, just like that, just like that. Just literally, all he did was walk by the dressing room of some other actor, and that director remembered him. Remembered him from from that. that. Wow. And so the PA finds him, calls him, flies him first class, like working class Yorkshire Patrick Stewart, who Mm. grew up in his Mm. outhouse. You know. He's suddenly in first-class seating being catered to with all the bells and whistles uh, all the way to Los Angeles for a film acting uh, gig. Walks in the door. Door's open. And so he knocks on the door, you know, tut tut, And he says, yeah, and comes in. And then he says, oh, hi, Mr. Lynch. I'm, you know, how are you? And he said, yes. Can I help you? <laughs> like, he didn't recognize him at all. Oh, wow. And so Patrick Stewart's heart just drops because he's like, oh, my God, you don't even know who I am. And... He's like, well, I'm Patrick Stewart. I'm the guy that you asked for to... You know, I, I was yeah. under the impression that you wanted me in this movie. Didn't say a word. Just stared at him. Oh, no. Because he was thinking... Like, you could see the, behind David Lynch's eyes. He's churning. He's like, oh, my God, who is this guy? And what am I going to do? Because I have to film next week. And then right at that moment, the uh, uh, some other people working on the movie come in and interrupt the awkward silence and stuff. And they're all warm and welcome. Oh, thank you, Patrick, for coming. Good to meet you and all this other kind of stuff. David Lynch was like, never talk to him for the whole film. Like, never, nothing. Because he didn't look anything like the the gaunt king or whatever. He had just come off of his Australian tour with Vin right. Lee. He had done something So he was like now. deep tan and everything wow. else. And so he's like a whole different person. And David Lynch was just like, oh my God, what have I done now? And so he never talked to him, never warmed up to him, no nothing, never. It was like a Gene Roddenberry thing because like Gene Roddenberry never liked Patrick Stewart either. Never, really? no, never warmed up to him. He never really understood why. He never got on board. They had like really tense uh, dinner conversations because eventually once the show was definitely going to be a success and they yeah. realized it's going to happen Gene Roddenberry was like well I guess I better make friends with this Patrick Stewart that I'm stuck with for TNG and they would go to dinner and it was always like really tense and short and awkward and wow. they never got along and he never and Patrick Stewart never understood why and he and he couldn't get it but that's just the way it was and so, so he must have had someone else in mind he definitely did not want Patrick Stewart, and had to come back several times. I, I to remember try to there get being it. a little bit of contrast because a, a balding, older, exactly. You know, the image just didn't yep. say start. It was a vast contrast to Kirk. Roddenberry apparently got overruled on his own show about who the captain was going to be. 
Wow. Because he never warmed up to him and would barely speak That's to him. That's too bad because he didn't. Uh, Roddenberry never saw past the first season, right? Oh, he got through, I think, four or five seasons, actually. Oh, did yeah, he? He was around for a while, yeah. He, he got, never warmed up to him? No, that's what he said. Wow, he never, the, never got close to him. Because I can understand the first season, you right. being a little, I don't of think course. this is going to work. No, it, I think he made it through three or four seasons before okay, he Okay, never mind then. But, never yeah, mind. And so by season two, it was... Already one of the most popular shows, and then season three is when you had your Borg cliffhanger episode, and that was when it was the most popular show on television was by season three. That was like all summer long. You're talking about, are they going to kill you know, Patrick Stewart, or, or is he going to come back, or are they going to have to blow up the cube uh, and save the Enterprise and all this other stuff? So it was just all kinds of great stories like that are so good. But the, the thing that I think I enjoyed most is that throughout all of those stories and his childhood and... Even when he's uh, very young, there's a story he tells about a squirrel and uh, how he always paused to appreciate nature and to, you know, smell the roses, quite mm -hmm. literally, I think. And uh, so there was a squirrels are pretty rare in his neighborhood growing up. And so to see a squirrel is like, wow, look at that. And so they were all gathered around. And then this other rough and tumble kid from, you know, older boy from Yorkshire, he had a gun. And so he shows up and says, what are you chaps looking at? You know, in the Yorkshire accent that he did. And then, so the, the the older kid shoots the squirrel, and then as he's like raising the gun to shoot the squirrel, Patrick Stewart like slow motion, like no, and he wanted to stop him, but he shoots the squirrel, and he talks about in detail how the squirrel fell from the tree and it was all hurting and died, and it just you know, he went home and cried and sobbed because he was just a kid and he'd never seen anything die before, and it 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 left a permanent mark in his head. So you kind of. Things like that, you see how sensitive he is and emotionally he is and how much it, things matter to him and the yeah. details of stuff like that. And I, and I resonate that with that a lot because I have a lot of memories that are similar that don't mean anything to anybody else. But to him, that image of that boy coming up and shooting the squirrel out of the tree, it just it never left him. And wow. and then eventually in COVID 2020, because it gets all the way through the, his, his life you know, till today, it's a memoir after all. Then during COVID, he's living in L.A. during lockdown, and they had a squirrel come to the backyard. And eventually, like through slowly feeding the squirrel and, yeah. and uh, the trust games, because it's COVID and lockdown, so the, what else have you got to do but to try to get a squirrel to eat out of your hand slowly? And eventually, they trained the squirrel so that it would come into the house and take nuts from their lap. And, and so he, like, yeah. full circle 70 years later got to make amends for that squirrel that he couldn't save, basically, as a child. That, that memory never left him. And now he has his own squirrel that comes to his house and feeds. he gets to feed nuts during COVID and everything else. Wow. Like, to any other person, you tell that story out of context. And like, Let me tell you about the squirrel. You know, and it, was, it could have been such a boring, stupid story. It could have been such a, like, okay, dude. Like, thanks for telling me about your stupid squirrel that you witnessed getting killed and then that you're... It's a story about feeding squirrels out of your backyard. But it <laughs> you think about it, anybody else telling that story that I know, I'd be like, "Great. Thanks for telling me about your squirrel, dude." But with him and this whole book is like this, <laughs> you care. And it it sound it's a good story. <laughs> and at the end of it you're like, "Oh, that was a good chapter. I like that." <laughs> <laughs> oh, that was a sweet that made story. me happy. It, yeah. Exactly. No, that's and a great story. So like the whole book is like that. You at the end of it you're just, like, "Just little wow, vignette I didn't, stories I didn't that, know that, kind that of... was going to go there, but I'm happy it did." <laughs> and that's that's the vibe of the whole thing. He talks about living in a haunted house and how he uh, sold the haunted house that was totally haunted to somebody in California because 
because at the time the law said that you had to reveal uh, any anything wrong with the house, including spiritual uh, hauntings or anything. Like if you suspected the house was haunting, yeah. how, if you suspected at that time that the house was haunted, you had to legally put that into the sale of the house, that the, the house was haunted. He didn't do it. <laughs> So he didn't tell them that he thought the house was haunted with all these things that happened. And he's got all these great stories about stuff that, like, really weird stuff that happened, like poltergeist-level stuff, Ghostbusters-level stuff that happened. And uh, and so he didn't tell the owners. But then he, like, ran into them, like, a year later. Or he got was on the phone with the with the one, the woman who bought the house. Right. And and she just, all she said was, hey, uh, you didn't tell us about everything that goes on in the house did you <laughs> and he was like oh no because he didn't know if it was his he's not like overly i believe in ghosts yeah, he or anything like it was just big, like yeah. i can't explain this and it's really weird and it could be it's like ghostish related that you hear about but i'm not gonna tell somebody because it makes you feel crazy but he knows what he saw kind of thing but then she just said you didn't tell us everything and he apologized and he's like oh my gosh is, is anybody hurt did anything happen and then he came clean on the phone and, and talked to her about it. And apparently they had some of the same stuff happen in their house. Like, totally. He didn't know her. Wow. He never went back to that house. Wow. But, like, it's so cool that stuff, like, little stuff like that. Who would have thought that Patrick Stewart or Captain Picard would be telling you ghost stories in this book? And that it would actually be interesting like that. So, anyway. Things like that uh, are that's, just that's sprinkled pretty That's throughout. a pretty neat story. It really is. Uh, uh, lots of fun stuff. And then... Uh, let's see. The last notes I have are uh, acting-wise. He's that I thought this was great as an actor. That his famous actor. A lot of people are going to come up to you at conventions or on the street and everything else. They say, "What's the one thing you can tell me about how to make it as a Hollywood actor or whatever?" And over the years, he says he's boiled it down to be fearless. And if you can do that and embody that, then you can have a chance to make it in Hollywood. But you have to just you have to be fearless, and not just Hollywood, but in theater in general. So yeah, just no. go for it. General if you rule, want to do yeah. it, then freaking go for it. Get out there and do it. Be fearless about it. So I wanted to share that. That's my one of my new mantras that I have, like in my notes and my own notebooks and stuff. Is be fearless. Yeah. Dash Pat's too. Twenty twenty three. You know, um, acting wise, the last thing I'll say about that is it. It was so. I said last week that it was like I was vicariously living a lot of that stuff through him because I'm never going to be in the Royal Shakespeare Company and I, I wouldn't want to be but the I would want to be but the I, I, I'm never going to do it but if I had it's just that you got to he has the same sort of technique that I still I do ascribe to as an actor which is make it real as make it as real as possible if you were this person in this situation in this moment what would you really do and it really comes down to listening and responding so someone says a line to you how would you genuinely react to that line in the very first time you heard it in real life and then that's where all of your inspiration can come from as an actor and as a character it's like you just have to let it be real every time you hear it and let it be the first time that you as a person has ever heard that line and then just react to it like you normally would. And that's making it real and, and keeping it uh, listening and responding. And for, so for to hear him uh, testify to that method, which is exactly what I do and, and try to do and practice, 
and to hear him spit it back like I've been doing this for 70 years and I'm very successful doing it and to hear him um, validate I guess is the word I'm looking for that that technique and method that I've always gone for oh, it just felt so so good like a mentor almost telling me that I've been doing it right kind of thing so I'm very excited about that and I actually sent an email to Judith Weston who is uh, a brilliant acting coach and teacher and she's a film she has a great book called the the, uh, film acting uh, directing actors is the name of it which is basically you're taking these left brain directors and people to helping them communicate with these right brained actors so that they can make a movie together right and so she's taught workshops for like 30 years uh, with these triple a super directors who just need to know how to how do i talk to brad pitt when he refuses me (laughs) like he wants to be brad pitt but i need him to do this you know, exactly. and they don't know how to talk to like the actors and, and like George Lucas is famous for faster and more intense, right? That's all right. he would say to that's them. That's all he would say. It was terrible. And that's very common is that a lot of directors, they don't know how to direct. They just, they, he, Lucas, you know, very brilliant creatively and, and film wise and, and technically making the movie. But when he told Carrie Fisher or Harrison Ford, you know, I need you to do it different. It wasn't good enough. Well, how would you like it, George? Faster and more intense. That's all he ever said. And else that's that, a very, yeah. very common expression. So Judith Weston wrote this whole book about it, which I just fell in love with. It's like my acting Bible. And I've read it through, listened to it. She did an audio book on it, too. And I actually emailed her out of the blue from her website after, right after I finished making it so. And I was like, hi, you know, da, 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 da. I'm a big fan of the book. I hope you make an audio book of the second book you did. I wanted to recommend making it so uh, to you about Patrick Stewart's memoir. And I basically pitched her the book and I said, and then I said a, a good thank you. And I said, the book also helped me to finally take the time to sit down and say thank you for writing your book because it's changed how, how much my acting has changed and how much I've grown. I told her how I got to direct my first play and got to do my first project and, and how much it helped me and all this other kind of stuff. She wrote me back within hours. And just as soon as she woke up that morning in England, or I guess, or whatever, and says, thank you so much for your delightful message. I was so happy to read it. And it, and I'm actually preparing to – I'm putting all the stuff together to record the second audiobook now. So your message was like a nice little motivating factor for me to do all this work to get the audiobook ready. And uh, just sent so, me this lovely notebook from one of my mentors currently that I love. So unlike the uh, the witch from uh, Choose Your Own Adventure, who we <laughs> – who we, we complimented. Yes. We complimented so much, yes. but, uh, but yeah, yes. she said no thanks. So Judith Weston actually wrote me back, and so and then she told me the joy that I, the, the the second book that I wanted her record an audiobook is going to be out in April, which is my birthday. So I get to get that for my birthday. So it'll be right great. on, right on. So, but that's part of the be fearless, you know, Pat's two things. Like I'm going to send this lady an email, and it's just like just do it. It's fine. So. That was that's the last acting thing that I'll say, and I'll, I'll be done with it. And uh, but it was just so uh, connecting for me personally to right. have all to have all the beasts was similar. So the last things uh, that I think a lot of people will probably want to read the book about is like the finale of uh, the Next Generation and and the the show that we hated and loved at the same time, which right. was Star Trek Picard. Oh, oh boy, he does yeah. talk a lot about what those first two seasons were. And why the third season is different, and why we hated the first two seasons, and the, and the third one was such a difference. Get this. Listening. He agreed to do it only after lots of stipulations. And the third season? No, no, no. The show itself. 
Because he was so done with Picard, he had done all these other great characters after TNG was over. And honestly, by the end of season seven, he, he knew. He was like, dude, I'm so done with this character right, and this yeah. show. He, he had been doing it for seven years Seven now. years. He they did seven full on. seasons, and it, and it hit hard in the seventh season. He's like, all right, <laughs> I'm never looking back to this character. And he said farewell to, to Captain Jean-Luc Picard. Fair. And fair, and then went on to do X Men and all these other great things, uh, and lots of uh, stage work and, and great characters that he finally got to do. Like he finally got to go back and play uh, Macbeth, Macbeth or King Lear. All the, the huge things he wanted to do, really, Les Mis, exactly the huge all stuff. These, yeah, and things dream list of and, stuff. And the thing is, though, that gave him the ability to go and do those precisely. Type of things. Yeah, and and then oh, just draw from that experience at the same time and so good for him and i was really happy about it but he was never going to come back to picard because why and so they finally convinced him because of the story arc they wanted to tell but he was the one who was insistent no uniforms whatsoever i don't want to wear another dang uniform and then he said uh i don't want it to be about the tng cast it needs to be about picard and his story and i don't want this to happen i don't want that to happen and i want this to happen and there was something else, I forget what it is right now off the top of my head, but the writers kept asking him in season one and season two, can we please do this with the character? Can we write it this way? And he would veto it and say, no, that's, that's not, not, we're not, doing it that that's not what we're, we agreed to, and that's not how we're going to do it. He had to tell them no repeatedly. Finally, the season three comes along, which we know now is a massively big pivot of the rest of the show and is some of the best Star Trek I've ever seen uh, because it leans into what we loved and knew about it. It was like the Picard that yeah, we knew it's, and it's loved. Totally it was totally breath of fresh air. It was, I would never suggest anyone watch the, the first, first two, two seasons. seasons. No. They're just garbage. The first two seasons I will forget about, but the third season, oh man, it was such a beautiful ending to the whole thing. And in large part, that was because he finally took the reins off of the writers and let them write what they needed to write and, and to say what they needed Good to say. Exactly. Just... And and it's not like he was being obstinate or stubborn or you know anim- having animosity well, about it. He just he wanted to not have a reunion show. He had seen stuff like that. He wanted but, to not fall into the trap of other bad shows and other crap that he had seen I, in the past. Yeah, and I get that, but the thing is though, that's what the show needed to be. It did. Because it looks like where they were going with Picard, they didn't know, and the story was just so far out. They didn't feel... Remember we said, wow, we're watching some show with some guy <laughs> yeah. pretending to be right. Picard <laughs> in some alternate universe. Some pale imitation of... Yeah. Pa- uh, and, 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 and how, you know, no one is the, no, no one is like they used to be. I mean, you know, or, you know, um, who... What, what's his name? Um, uh, uh, Q was not Q. You know, all this t- kind of stuff. Right. So, yeah, it just, it didn't, it fell flat, but thankfully it got where it needed to go. It got where it needed to go. That's another episode of Saturday Morning Samoflange, which you can go back and listen to. Like, just scroll back through the episodes and you can find plenty on that, too. Mm -hmm. Um, But then the one thing that I really loved and one of my favorite stories is the ending of how Picard was supposed to end. And... One of the stipulations that I mentioned earlier is, and that he said from the beginning. He had, go ahead. No, he had said, I want Picard's story to wrap up and as him happy and satisfied, yeah. like with his life. I don't want to die in a blaze of glory. It's, I don't want to have this it's, moment. It's the Bilbo Baggins exactly. Hobbit, and he lived he's, the rest of his there, days happily he's back ever again after. And, yeah, and, and, there and, and back. And he lived the rest of his days there and back again. Exactly. That's 
that was one of his requirements to come back and do the show. He's like, fine, we'll just we'll wrap it up with his story and it's going to end well. And then here's how I want it to end. So I film in the last scene and I believe the show ended on the, the poker table, just like TNG did back in the 90s. Right. Right. So they're dealing cards. They're having a good time They're They're uh, uh, I should have done this a long time ago. And then they have right. another beautiful reunion moment around the poker table with the original crew. And, and they have a uh, it's a great send off and everything else. So they were filming that scene. But then Patrick had to be on a plane that night or that early, early next morning. He had to be somewhere for this huge commitment that he had already made. And the, the producers of Picard were fully aware, but they're like, it was on the schedule to shoot it, but they yeah. couldn't, they kept getting delayed and they couldn't do it. So he's like, look, I got to get to the airport. So I'll tell you what, this final scene of the entire show, the rap scene, let me get on the airport. This is one shot. All we'll have to do is just, it'll take a few hours, but I promise you, I'm going to fly to New York, do my thing. And then you just let me know and I'll come back afterward and i i will specif- specifically come back just to do this last scene for you you just tell me the day oh, wow so he flies he they finish what they were shooting and they they saved that last shot for another day he flies to new york nothing he never hears from paramount no one calls him and he says he feels partly a little bit guilty that he didn't call them he waited too long to reach out and say hey uh when are we going to film that last scene it and he eventually did have to call because they didn't call him and when he finally did they're like no you know what we're not going to do that the studio thinks it'd cost too much money it'd be too much work no one wants to do it we think the show's fine and he was like what no you're telling me the scene that i asked for from the beginning is not gonna happen is now. now cut because you didn't get the schedule right and we couldn't film it that day. And I promised you I could come back. Yeah, I would come back would and come do back it because I want this. I would come back for an hour or two, and then the scene would be done. And you're suddenly telling me, yeah, what studio doesn't want to do it. It costs too much money. And like, what? So he was, you know, livid, naturally, like I would have been. But apparently, so he goes into great detail explaining what the last scene of Picard is supposed to be in his own words. Oh, wow. So this never got recorded. Never got shot. But he tells you this is what it's supposed to be. So he's at Chateau Picard. He's looking out into the vineyard. The sun's going down. He's got his beloved dog next to him because, you know, he fosters a lot of dogs and takes care of, like, pit bulls and and lots of dogs. That's something he and his wife do. Mm -hmm. And so the beloved dog is next to him. He's got a glass of Chateau Picard in his hand. And he hears a voice calling to him from behind. Because remember, he had a couple of love interests in Picard, too. He had the Romulan uh, girl who was living with him for a while. Yeah. And then he had uh, Beverly Crusher shows back up, and he's got a son now and all this other stuff. So you hear a voice call from behind, off camera, behind you, and he turns and looks, and you never see who the woman is. So you don't know if it's Beverly. You don't know if it's uh, Roe or whatever the uh, Romulan girl's name was. Yeah. And you don't know who it is. But his real-life wife, whose name is Sunny, she was set to actually record the line, uh, uh, Jean-Luc, come in for dinner, or something like that. It was just one line, but his real-life wife was going to say it so that, and they were going to maybe change her voice so that you couldn't couldn't quite tell tell who it was was exactly. And then he was just going to smile and turn towards the camera and walk past the camera and back into his house. The sun would go down over the Chateau Vineyard and, you know, uh, credits roll. 
And that's the ending. Uh, that's how he wants Picard to end. So wow. literally walking off into the sunset with his like happy, satisfied, mission accomplished. Got Story my dog, wrapped up. Got my wine. Got my wife. Got my life. Everything's good. Boom. Wow. So awesome. Awesome. I, just, I love that. Oh, uh, it's so it's it's maybe a bit cliche, but in the very very best way. It's all I would Put want. Put it to rest. That's the only thing I would want for Captain Picard. Yeah. Like, dude's yeah. done enough. <laughs> Time to have relax. He go out on another blaze of glory. Exactly. And he, he's done enough. He doesn't have to make it to next Saturday. Morning. Samuel Flange.